before you take your seats, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time when we can stand in your presence this morning, Lord, and worship you and lift up your name. With everything crazy that's going on in this world, Lord, we just thank you that you're here in this place. And this morning, Lord, we just ask that you speak to our hearts, that you speak to our minds, Lord, that we would encounter you today and learn more about you. We thank you, Lord, that you love us. And on this day, we just ask as we come into this place that we would not leave the same way that we came in, that we would be transformed by your word, that we'd be transformed by this interaction that you had with this woman in this passage in our text this morning, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Awesome. Well, you may take your seats. Before you sit down, high-five the person to your left or your right, or air high-five, rather. You doing okay? Hello? You doing all right? Awesome. Welcome to church this morning. If you and I haven't met before, my name is Sam, and uh, I'm on team here at DLC. I'm one of the pastors here at DLC, and I'm thrilled to be sharing this morning. We are going to look at a passage of scripture this morning that has an interesting interaction between Jesus, a Pharisee, and a woman. If you brought your Bibles, grab them out. It's okay if it's an iPhone or a Samsung. I guess we'll forgive you if you have a Samsung phone here this morning, because iPhone for the win. But um, grab out your Bibles and open up to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7. We'll read it in a couple of minutes. I do have a few things I want to preface this message by saying, but we're going to look today at our text in Luke chapter 7 and verse 36. The book of Luke, or the gospel of Luke, the good news written by Luke. Luke is a distinguished writer of one of the Bible texts, the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. And uh, Luke is uh, an interesting man. Luke is a Gentile. He is the only Gentile author in Scripture, the only author of a biblical text who is a Gentile. So his perspective is unique in the sense that it's tailored for Gentiles specifically. Matthew and Mark write to Jewish Christians, and throughout their Gospels, you can see uh, Jewish symbols and, and feasts and all different manner of uh, Jewish context throughout the passages. But Luke here is a Gentile, and he takes a different twist in the understanding of Jesus' interactions on this planet. Luke is also a physician or a doctor. We know this because Paul talks about Luke being a physician. We also know this because as Bible translators uh, sought to interpret the original Greek into English, they not only had to interpret or translate that, but they had to attempt to translate his chicken scratch penmanship which was a challenge as he was a doctor. Cue the laughter. But Luke's gospel places a special emphasis on those who were excluded culturally from the customs of the day. A key idea from the text of Luke and a key idea that we're going to see this morning, our emphasis this morning, is that Jesus came to save the lost. And it's true, that is seen throughout the Gospels and seen throughout the writings of Paul, Jesus came to save the lost, but 
The lost did not just include those who did not know Jesus, but the lost included specifically every kind of marginalized person whom the traditional religion, the Jewish religion of the day, would put out, would cast out of the normal boundaries. And this is Luke's emphasis as a Gentile. As you read the text, you see Jesus interact in the way that Luke writes about it. Jesus interacts with women. He interacts with slaves. He interacts with sinners of all kind. It's the unique perspective of a Gentile writer. And so this morning, our text comes from Luke chapter 7, verse 36. And we're going to read right through to the end of the chapter. But right before we read the text this morning, Jesus has been in ministry, in active ministry now for some time. He's been performing miracles. He's been performing healings. Jesus has been preaching the coming kingdom of God. We are some time into now the walk of Jesus He's had some interactions with Pharisees before, and in this passage, Jesus finds himself in the home of a Pharisee. Let's look at this scripture together, starting at Luke chapter 7, verse 36. It says this, Now one of the Pharisees was requesting Jesus to eat with him. And he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. Remember that there, a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when that woman learned what Jesus, that Jesus was reclining at the table of the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume and standing behind Jesus at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and she wiped them with the hair of her head began kissing his feet and anointing them with perfume. We'll stop there for the moment. Immediately prior to this interaction, Jesus has just finished sharing or just finished preaching one of the many messages that he's shared. If you look at the chronology of scripture or the order in which uh, these things were written, Jesus has already preached the Sermon on the Mount, a famous thing. He's taught about the golden rule. And Jesus is standing and preaching, sharing in the community of Galilee when one of the religious leaders, a Pharisee, who we find out later his name is Simon, comes and invites Jesus to his home. It was common in those days that rabbis or visiting speakers, philosophers, people who knew something about something were invited into the homes of other people so that they could share and continue to share that knowledge, continue to share on philosophy or social issues or cultural issues. Not only would they go into the synagogue or the temple or, or to someone's house and preach or just on the street corners, but then they would be invited to come to the home of one other le another leader and they would continue to share. It was common. So Jesus here is not just a guest. The Pharisee has invited him into the home. Chapter 36, verse 36 says, but he's not just a guest. He's the guest of honor. And in comes Jesus. He enters into the home. He reclines at the table. And a woman in the city, I said, remember this, a woman in the city who was a sinner comes into the room. Now that phrase, a woman in the city who was a sinner, is really one word. It means one thing. 
It means a prostitute. This woman was a prostitute, a woman who regularly sold her body for money, who sold pleasure for money. She was in the home of the Pharisee. Her life was well-known, was obviously well-known by the Pharisees, enough to categorize her as a sinner. And that word sinner, you know, we often say, well, we all sin, we all sin. And, you know, we do, we say that, that's a part of our Orthodox Christian understanding of what it means to be a believer. We acknowledge that we're sinners, but the sinner label or the designation of the word sinner in this day at this time was not just a generic understanding of, well, you're a sinner and I'm a sinner. It was a designation or a label that was attached to those whose lives were habitually plagued by the presence of sin, meaning that sin was a lifestyle. It was a choice to sin. It was a choice to follow in this lifestyle of hers as a woman in the city, a sinner, a prostitute. We know, as I said in our orthodox understanding of Christianity, that responding to Jesus also means acknowledging that we're sinners, but this means so much more here. This woman's life was full of sin. Here this woman is labeled, the text, the word that's used for sinner is immoral person, and when applied to a woman, it only talks about adulterers or prostitutes. So this woman was a sinner. And somehow this woman learns that Jesus, the rabbi, the teacher, who is going around preaching in all these different towns and all these different cities, is reclining at the table of the home of the Pharisee named Simon. And so she grabs an alabaster vial of perfume. Actually, in those days, it was not uncommon for women to wear the alabaster vial, a small vial uh, around their neck, attached to a, a leather string around their neck. They were allowed to wear it so much, they were allowed to wear it on the Sabbath. And so this woman grabbed her vial of perfume or had it around her neck and worked out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. That word reclining, if you've joined us for one of our Good Friday services in the past, that word reclining is referring to the way in which formal dinner parties occurred in antiquities. In this time, the way that formal dinner parties occurred, there was a triclinium or tri, meaning three couches in the shape of a U, and they would lie down on the outside of those couches on their left side facing down, and their right arm would come up and grab their food. You didn't use your left hand to eat, and many cultures still do not do that today. But Jesus and the Pharisees, all those who were present for the meal, for this special banquet, reclined at the triclinium, and this woman enters into the house of the Pharisee. Now, I can tell you this, the woman definitely was not invited to this banquet. Not only was she a prostitute, but she was a woman, and in this time, women had no social status whatsoever. The only way that she could have got in was because of the uniqueness of this event. Whenever a visiting rabbi, as I said before, would come in, they would have them come and join them for a meal where they could continue to discuss social issues or cultural issues. And what they would often do is leave the gates to the house open. Simon the Pharisee probably had a bit of cash on him. He probably had a nice home. He had entertained guests before. And so the gate to his home would have been left open. His door would have been left open. And people from the community would have come in uninvited 
but they would have gathered at the perimeter of the room just to listen in on what the rabbi was saying, what the teacher was saying, what the philosopher was saying. It was an opportunity for community engagement whilst maintaining this power imbalance of the Pharisees having such influence within the community. So in this occasion, undoubtedly, the woman probably sneaks in, I imagine, at nighttime because if it was daylight and they saw this woman coming in, knowing who she was, it's highly unlikely they would have let her in. But this woman sneaks in and finds herself at the feet of Jesus. So let's set the scene here. This woman has a lifestyle of prostitution, a lifestyle where her sin is abundantly evident. It's obvious you can see it. She can go anywhere she wants in the city, and she's known as a woman of the city. And she enters into this room, this place where they're having a banquet. They're discussing theological issues. They're discussing philosophical issues. Jesus is there, this esteemed rabbi. The relationship between Jesus and the Pharisees was not yet antagonistic. Perhaps this story is the straw that broke the camel's back. But the woman comes in under candlelight, not seen, not heard, and finds herself at the feet of Jesus. And here she begins to weep uncontrollably. The conversation in the room has ceased. At this stage now, it's likely that People have turned from where they're reclined at and, and look to see what's going on. I hear some crying. I hear something going on. And all eyes are on this woman. And the woman then begins to perform a series of acts at the feet of Jesus that transforms her life forever. Firstly, as she stands behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. That phrase or that description, wet his feet with her tears, doesn't just mean a couple droplets from her eyes, but that word wet literally means rain and torrential downpour. Can you imagine the vulnerability of this woman who's just come in, she knows the, sta the state of her life. She knows who she is, and she's come into this place that she doesn't belong with judgmental people. And she begins to bawl her eyes out. A torrential downpour that then saturates the feet of Jesus. She's come to a place that she's not welcome to. She's unclean. She's ceremonially unclean. She's a sinner. She's unloved. She knows nobody there. And she begins to bawl her eyes in the presence of Jesus and wets his feet with her tears in this room full of religious practitioners. Not only does she wet the feet of Jesus with her tears, but then she begins to wipe them with the hair of her head and begins kissing his feet and anointing his feet with perfume. Now, if the fact that she's a prostitute is not controversial enough for this story, she comes in, wets the feet of Jesus with her tears, and then does something even more controversial. She takes the bind in her hair and removes it so that her hair falls down. She lets her hair down. 
In this day and age, letting your hair down means to relax, to be calm, cool, and collected. You're hanging out. You're having fun. That is not what it meant in the first century. For the Jewish woman to physically let her hair down, to remove the bind in her hair and let it fall, was akin to somebody coming into the service today naked. It was indecent exposure at the highest level. It was highly sexual. It was highly inappropriate. This was the custom of the day, the culture of the day. And so this woman who's a prostitute, doesn't belong here, comes into this room, begins to cry at the feet of Jesus, causes a scene, stops their philosophical discussion, stops their theological debate, And she begins to mop up the tears, the torrential tears from the feet of Jesus with the hair on her head. When a Jewish woman would get married, she would bind her hair up and never again would she be seen with her hair down in public. And she goes on and kisses the feet of Jesus and anoints them with perfume. Kissing the feet of Jesus... This idea of kissing the feet of Jesus is the same kind of idea that we see when we look at the parable of the prodigal son, for example. The father who is earnestly looking for his son, is searching for his son. He goes out and stands out and looks across the countryside each night looking for his lost son. And we know the son goes away and, and lives a ravish life and comes back thinking, maybe I'll just get by as a servant in my father's home. But the son is surprised at his father's response. His father runs out and meets him and kisses him. This is not a sexual kiss. This is a kiss of joy, a kiss of peace, a kiss of relief. It also describes how the elders of the church in Ephesus, do you remember this, that Paul was leaving Ephesus. This was going to be the last time that Paul was in Ephesus with the people there ministering to them. He leaves Ephesus, and as he's leaving, the elders of the church there, they embrace him, they hug him, they prophesy over him, they pray over him, and they kiss him. So here we have a controversial scene where a woman who does not belong comes into a place and interrupts their meal. And Simon the Pharisee, who we'll find out in just a second what his name is, I've jumped the gun, but Simon the Pharisee then begins to question the authority and the person of who Jesus is. You see, the Pharisees were skeptical at all times about the divinity or the status of Jesus. And here we see that Simon refers to Jesus as a prophet in verse 39. We're going to read, continue down to verse 43. But Jesus and Simon now have an interaction. Jesus and a Pharisee now have an interaction. The first couple verses we see Jesus and this woman. But now we see Jesus and Simon in the home of Simon the Pharisee. Verse 39, it says this. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him, Jesus, saw what was going on, this interruption, he said to himself, not audibly, not verbally, 
he thinks to himself, if this man, Jesus, were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him. She is a sinner. And Jesus, in his divinity, not yet known by Simon the Pharisee, responds to a question that was not vocalized and says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And Simon replied and said, say it, teacher, say it, rabbi. And then Jesus goes and begins to explain in the form of a parable. He says this in verse 41. A moneylender had two debtors. The one debtor owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were both unable to repay, he canceled the debts of both. So, which one of them will love him more? And Simon answers and says, I assume the one for whom the great the I assume the one for whom he canceled the greater debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged correctly. Up until now, Simon the Pharisee, and really the Pharisees as a whole, were not yet totally antagonistic towards Jesus. We know from Scripture that the Pharisees played a large part in seeking to execute Jesus as you look later at the events that occur at the crucifixion. But at this stage, the Pharisees were not yet antagonistic against Jesus. They didn't yet hate Jesus. They may have disagreed with him, but they were not yet antagonistic with Jesus. It's apparent here that Simon may have been allowing the event that is occurring in his home to go on in order that Simon may ascertain who is this man, Jesus? Is he a prophet, as some claim him to be? This is Simon's home after all. And so Simon here has invited this guest in. He's allowing this guest to talk with them and eat with them. And then this interruption occurs and this woman comes in. And it's the perfect opportunity to ascertain or to learn Jesus' intentions and Jesus' life. It's all in all likelihood the Pharisees in the room would have used this as an opportunity to test Jesus, or as Admiral Akbar says in Star Wars, it's a trap. Luke here records two other occasions in Scripture when Jesus, in the Gospel of Luke, when Jesus has interactions with the Pharisees, both in chapter 11 and in chapter 14. And in both instances, the Pharisees at that time had fully determined to reject Jesus and his message. They hated his message at this stage. It was a message of peace and of grace and of hope and of salvation. So in all likelihood, they were merely attempting to gather evidence at this stage for who Jesus was. And perhaps this interaction here is the straw that broke the camel's back. Simon challenged Jesus just in his thoughts, saying if he were a prophet, he would have known that the woman was a sinner. But Jesus is not a prophet. Jesus himself is God incarnate. A few thoughts or a few notes about Pharisees. Pharisees are self-righteous people. They thought of themselves as non-sinners. Remember that designation before 
they looked at themselves and thought because of their strict observance of the law, of the rules, of the traditions, of the ceremonies and the, the cleaning ceremonies and the, the feast ceremonies and everything, they saw themselves as righteous. The Pharisees were obsessed with this thing called ceremonial cleanliness, meaning that each time that a feast had to occur or each time an event occurred or, or somebody died or you had to enter a home, you had to perform some actions that would make you clean to ensure that you remained clean, not just physically clean, but clean in the sight of God. No doubt Simon in his home notices at some stage that this woman has interrupted their feast, and he's probably conscious of the cleanliness of his home at this stage, but allows it because he's wanting to test Jesus. You know, the Pharisees also would get up every single day, and they would pray a number of different prayers. One of those prayers went like this. It goes like this. It goes, Blessed are you, Lord our God, ruler of the universe. And then listen to this. Who has not made me a Gentile, a dog, or a woman? So Simon the Pharisee is in this place watching this unfold before him and thinks to himself, this man Jesus is definitely not a prophet. And Jesus, in the way that he masterfully does, shares and communicates with Simon. Simon didn't say out loud, you're not a prophet, but Jesus out loud audibly says to him, hey, I've got something to say to you. And he begins to tell him this illustration, a very short story or a parable of two debtors, two people who owe money. The story goes like this one more time in verse 41. It says, a money lender had two debtors. The one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he canceled the debts of them both. This is the story. It's a short parable. A denarii equals one day's pay, one day's wage. You can work that out, what a denarii looks like for you today. But a denarii was one day's wage. And so in this parable, Jesus says there was a man who owed 500 days wages. And there was another who owed 50 days wages. For the purposes of this illustration, let's say that 500 denarii, which is about a year and a half's wage, is equal to roughly $100,000. Some of you might be thinking you need to go and renegotiate your contracts tomorrow morning. $100,000. And the 50 denarii debt, which is equal to just under two months, let's say that's worth about $10,000. Jesus is saying here that there's a man who owes $100,000 and another who owes $10,000. And when neither of them were able to repay the debt that they owed. The creditor, the bank, the person who had given the loan decided to clear their debt. 
This is no insignificant thing. Neither of those figures is insignificant. Certainly not to me. Neither of those figures is insignificant. That's a, that equates to a more, uh, payments on a mortgage, $100,000, or car payments, $10,000. Can you imagine tomorrow the loans that you currently have that you're paying off? You are unable to pay them, and the creditor, the bank, the financer, whatever it is, comes to you and says, you know what? You can't pay it anymore. That's okay. It's all yours. We'll give you the pink slip. It's all done. It's clear. Wouldn't that be good? And here Jesus says in this parable that there's these two debtors who owe this. And regardless of the fact that the numbers, which have difference, regardless of the fact of how much it is, neither amount is able to be repaid by the debtor. And so Jesus says then here in this passage, who then of these two will love more? And I think Simon begrudgingly answers this. It's an obvious answer. It's an obvious question with an obvious answer. Who here will love more? But because Simon knows who Jesus is talking about, he begrudgingly answers the one who owed more. The woman here, the prostitute, the woman of the city, the woman in the city who was a sinner is a $100,000 sinner. And Simon, who doesn't acknowledge because of his Pharisaic status, because he's a Pharisee, he doesn't acknowledge that he has sin present in his life, but he does. He's a $10,000 sinner. But Jesus here makes an important point to say that no matter what the debt owed, it cannot be repaid by the debtor. The third episode in this story, this encounter that Jesus has, is from Luke chapter 7, verse 44. After he had received his answer from Simon, he says, after he received his answer from Simon, he turns toward the woman, it says in verse 44, and says, do you see this woman? That's a question on its own. Do you see this woman? Do you see this woman here? Do you even see her? Jesus says, I entered your house, Simon, and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, Simon, but she has stopped, not stopped kissing my feet since the time that I came in. You did not anoint my hair, Simon, with oil, with perfume, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason, I say to you, Simon, her sins, which are many, her $100,000 sins, have been forgiven. For she has loved much. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. And then Jesus said to her, your sins have been forgiven. And when those who were reclining at the table with him heard this, they began to say to themselves, who is this man that even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Jesus highlights for us in this passage the love that the woman demonstrates towards Jesus as she shows him this gesture of hospitality. 
I said before, the key idea of Luke's gospel is that Jesus came to save the lost. He came to show hospitality to every kind of marginalized person whom traditional religion would put outside the boundaries. And here it is. He demonstrates this love and compassion towards this woman because she loved him much. This week in Australia, you celebrated a special, actually I'm going to say we celebrated a special sporting event called State of Origin. You familiar with State of Origin? The first service had at least like a some tiny response. State of Origin. And uh, I was invited to, actually I want to say a couple of things. First of all, I have lived here in Australia now for 16 years, okay? So, I am on board with Australian sports. You heard last week Pastor Ben pay me out about American sports. Well, I'm on board with Australian sports. That's the first thing. I like Australian sports. The second thing is this. If you ever invite me to your home to watch an Australian sport, please don't mansplain the sport to me. I know how the sport goes. I know how you play your sports here. I grew up here. The reason I talk about state of origin is because I was invited this week over to some friend's house for a state of origin party. We hung out. And as I arrived at these guys' house, I was greeted at the door. I knocked on the door. I was greeted at the door. I was handed a cold drink. I was handed some food, some snacks, some chips, some awesome hot dogs and burgers. And we had a great time. It was fun. We were chatting. That's what hospitality looks like. To be welcomed into a place with open arms. But the party that Jesus was invited to was void of this hospitality. There are Eastern customs which were required to be observed. This is not the exception. This is the rule. A requirement to observe Eastern customs when somebody entered a house. Specifically when it was for hospitality. So in this case, Jesus has been invited to come to the Pharisees' house for a meal. And he enters their home. And there was an expectation in that day that a number of customs were observed. The first one's this, foot washing. You're familiar with this. You would have heard this before. Foot washing was a common courtesy and a common custom that was observed in this time. The offering up of water either by the host or a servant of the host, a member of the host's family maybe. But it was customary for there to be foot washing because the roads that they walked on were dirt roads. Israel's largely a desert place, and so the roads that they walked on were dirt. They weren't paved. They were dirty and dusty. There was animals and livestock coming through. There was manure everywhere. It was not a clean place. And to come into the home of a Pharisee and to eat at the table of a Pharisee, one would have expected for there to be a cleanliness in the room. But Jesus was not offered up water for foot washing. A servant did not wash the feet of Jesus. The second custom that was meant to be observed when entering into a place of residence was a kiss of peace. Now I want to start by saying this is not a sexual thing. 
We have this in some European cultures today where you get a kiss on the cheek or a couple kisses on the cheek when you meet somebody new or when you greet each other. This is the same idea, a kiss of peace, a customary practice amongst the Jews, amongst the Greeks, even amongst the Romans. It was a mark of affection and of reverence. And it was done by a kiss on the cheek or a kiss on the neck, maybe a kiss on both cheeks. It's much the same way, as I said before, the prodigal son and his father come together. It was a regular greeting. It's like shaking hands, although we aren't shaking hands at the moment because of the current pandemic. And the third custom that was observed in hospitality was the anointing a guest's head with a small portion of perfume or oil. Now, this all sounds familiar because the woman observes these things, but it was a normal sign of respect to pour scented oil or perfume on somebody's head. This would not just moisturize your head and make it soft like a baby's bottom, but it would create a nice mood and aroma in the place where we are hanging out. It ensures that the smells in the room are pleasant. So with the absence of the host, Simon the Pharisee in this passage observing these customs, the woman performs these customs on Jesus in a most controversial way. Her role here is not to come in and perform these customs. She is not the servant of Simon the Pharisee. She has, she's a walk-in. She's come in on her own. She knows that she culturally and socially doesn't belong, and she's come into the home of Simon. And at the feet of Jesus, she washes his feet with her tears. She kisses his feet, and she anoints them with expensive perfume. Jesus looks to this woman at the end of this passage and forgives her sin. And we see the Pharisees get a little bit taken back by this, not understanding how this man can forgive sins. He's obviously not a prophet because he doesn't know who this woman is. But Jesus looks to the woman and forgives her sin, not because of the acts that she does for Jesus, that she performed for Jesus but because of the love in which she had for Jesus. The result of faith in Jesus, a response in Jesus, and the result of love and devotion towards him is forgiveness and peace. Jesus responds, reciprocates with forgiveness and peace. The woman walked into the room a sinner. A woman whose life was so full of sin her hair was down. She was exposed. It was sexual in nature. It was very controversial. And she is transformed and renewed by Jesus there and then. This encounter with Jesus changed this woman's life more than laws and rules and behavior modification and philosophy ever could. I want to share three points of observation for this text for us to go away with in the form of a question. I have three questions I want to ask us. I want to invite the band up. The first point is this. 
Who am I rejecting at the door? Who am I rejecting at the door? This account doesn't demonstrate an obvious rejection of Jesus by the Pharisees. They don't obviously reject him. They don't push him away from coming into the room. He's invited into the room. He's in the room with them. But there's an obvious rejection of hospitality towards Jesus. Hospitality equates to love. When you don't show hospitality, you're not showing love. We see Jesus is brought into the room and he's not welcomed in. And likewise, the prostitute hasn't been welcomed into the home of Simon the Pharisee. So here's a question. Who am I rejecting at the door? Who are you and I rejecting or marginalizing at the door of life? Who are we neglecting to demonstrate hospitality to? I know for me, it's so easy with so many conversations throughout the week and with youth. Yes, I'm the youth pastor here at the church and I oversee pastoral care and so many other areas in the life of our church and so many challenges that we see week in and week out. I know for me, there's a danger of marginalizing somebody and not showing hospitality and charity to them. The woman's world and her life are transformed all because Jesus looked at her and saw her for who she is, a person with a burden and a person who is weary. Jesus accepts the hospitality from the woman not because he wanted to be served. We know that Jesus didn't come to serve, but to, sorry, to come to be served, but he came to serve. And this picture of hospitality is the picture Jesus wants for his church. It's in Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. For this is the law and the prophets, the golden rule. Paul emphasizes this as well to the church. Paul's the pastor to the Gentiles. He's the one that we get our teaching from and he says in Romans 13, verse 8, Owe nothing. He's reiterating the words of Jesus and says, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. You know, loving your neighbor is accepting them at the door, showing hospitality to them. The question for us is, who are we failing to welcome into this place, into this family, into this community? we have on our walls, you belong here. First one is, who am I rejecting at the door? The number two application question for you and for me. What am I carrying into the room? This woman seemingly enters into this room as a $100,000 sinner and leaves this room forgiven and saved and at peace forever, completely transformed because of the love of God. You know, before this story ever even begins, before we even learn of Jesus being invited into the home of Simon the Pharisee, we see that Jesus is out in the city of Galilee preaching the word of God. Jesus has just had an interaction with the disciples of John the Baptist. This is a little context into what happens immediately before this passage. 
Jesus' preaching and some disciples of John the Baptist come to him with the question, are you really the one whom will save the world? John the Baptist is imprisoned at this time. He's afraid for his life. He doesn't know what's happening and he's begun to doubt. And the disciples come and speak to Jesus and say, are you really the one? And Jesus sends them away encouraged to go back and tell John the Baptist that he is indeed the one, the coming Messiah. And Jesus goes on and he he shares a, a couple more points in his message. But at the end of this message, he rounds off with an altar call. Now when you look at the chronology of scripture, the order in which scripture was written, we see here where we are looking at this passage, Luke chapter 7, if you jump over to the Gospel of Matthew, at the same time, the events are occurring in Matthew chapter 11. Jesus is preaching and he's talking to the disciples of John and you jump over to Luke chapter 7 and he's doing the same there. So we're at the same point. And Jesus, as he's finishing off, as he's rounding off his message, he's beginning to give his altar call. He's got a few minutes left. And Jesus says these incredible words. He says, come to me, Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. All who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Just leave it up there for a minute. This is the words that Jesus speaks and the next thing that happens is Simon the Pharisee approaches him and says hey would you come and have a meal with us today I wonder what is the likelihood that this woman this prostitute is present in the crowd when Jesus says these phenomenal words that have transformed the lives of so many. What is the likelihood of the woman being present when Jesus invited all those who are weary and heavy laden to find rest in him? So when you enter into the presence of God, when you enter into church and we worship together, what are you carrying? The woman in that moment responds to the invitation of Jesus in that moment right there responds to the invitation of Jesus and then knows and sets her journey to, I have to go and see him now. I have to do whatever it takes to get to see him right now. And so she grabs her alabaster vial of perfume and heads towards Simon the Pharisee's home. She pursues Jesus to even the scariest place imaginable for a prostitute, into the home of the aggressors, into the home of the self-righteous, into the home of those who would seek to stone people who commit sins like this woman. And this woman finds rest and peace in Jesus despite the glare she receives from those around the table. So what are you carrying in the room this, this morning? What are you carrying? Because Jesus here presents an opportunity to offload for all those who are weary and heavy laden. Number three, how do I see people? How do I see people? 
You know, the heart of Jesus in this story is bleeding because of the ignorance of Simon the Pharisee in this passage. You know, a win here for Jesus, a true win here for Jesus would be that the heart of Simon realizes there is a necessity for repentance because of his self-righteous $10,000 sinful heart. This is a win for Jesus that Simon would respond, but we don't see that happen in the scripture. Who knows? Maybe Simon goes away from this experience convicted and transformed. And though this woman is a $100,000 sinner and Simon's just a $10,000 sinner, he's a sinner no less. What Jesus is teaching us here is to see people through his lens, not the lens of a Pharisee, not our own lens. You know, Pastor Ben shared last week, and from memory, this is what was shared in our God, Money, and Me series, that 3,000 digital marketing images are exposed to us individually every single day. That means every single day, you and I, whether we're conscious of it or not, will be exposed to and influenced by up to 3,000 digital marketing images. And each one of those moments of exposure are there to influence us and tell us what we should be consumers of, what we should eat, what we should buy, how we should dress. They're there to change our lifestyle, to see what we should look like, how we should vote, what we should believe in, where our values should stand. And they seek to influence us to Think of what is popular or sexy, what is right or wrong. And the danger we have is we introduce our Orthodox Christianity, our understanding of Christian faith or our Christian worldview, and we mix it together with what we're exposed to, and we have this truth of the gospel. But Jesus here is going back to the roots and saying this. Come to me. And in this moment, as he looks out across the crowd, he says and speaks directly to the heart of this woman, come to me because you're weary and you're burdened and I want to give you rest. This invitation is not just for those who have the right things happening, happening in their life, not just for those whose lives are on track like the Pharisees or the religious leaders or the scribes or whatever we know they don't respond to this message but Jesus here includes those specifically who are marginalized in our world those who don't have a chance those who have the finger pointed at them because of the way that they live Jesus says it's not the healthy who need a doctor but the sick I've not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance would you please stand with me This morning, I've labored on and taken you on a journey or a tour through the first century, looking at customs and looking at what is going on in this passage for the sole purpose of us understanding that Jesus here wants to grow in relationship 
with this woman who is a prostitute, who is an outcast, who is a sinful person. But he has come so that we all may have rest, that we may all have peace, so that we may all be saved. Would you bow your heads across this room? Maybe you're here this morning and you've come in today, you've been invited in, or you've stumbled in for whatever reason. Maybe you're here today and you're not familiar with this devotion and love of God towards those who aren't on track with their life. Maybe you're here today and you have never responded to the gospel message that says, Jesus, thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for forgiving me. We have this picture of God where there's a a big man in the sky throwing lightning bolts at us. This is a Greco-Roman understanding of who God is. It's the understanding that these people here who are not Jews, the Greeks and the Romans, is the understanding that they had of God. But the understanding of God in the person of Jesus is one that does not even persecute you because of your sin, does not even attack you because of the state that your life is in, but instead offers forgiveness, instead offers peace. And this morning, right across this room, I want to provide an opportunity for you if you're here today and you have never receive this offer of peace regardless of where you are at in life right now. You know, I've had many conversations where I've talked to people who have responded to the gospel message or or who want to respond, but they often say to me, "I, I just don't know if I'm ready for that yet. Well, you know, this Jesus doesn't require you to be ready for the response. Jesus doesn't require for you to get your life on track, to work your marriage out, to work your finances out, to work that sin out, that addiction, the drugs, the alcohol, whatever it may be. There's no call for you to work that out. The call is an offer for you to give it to Jesus. Those that are, those things that are causing us to be weary or burdened. And so this morning, right across this room from my left to my right, I'm the only one looking If that is you this morning and you would like to respond to that offer, come to me, all who are weary, all who are burdened, who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If you want to experience the forgiveness and the love of God this morning, right now, with no one looking around, it's just me. I just want you to raise your hand up nice and high so I can see that hand. I see that hand. Thank you so much for that. I see that hand there. That's awesome. I see that hand there. That's great. Is there anybody else? I see that hand back there. Thank you. Is there anybody else? I see that hand back there. Thank you very much. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for your word and this time that we've had together. We thank you, Lord, that we see in this story your nature, who you are, a God of love, not a God who points the finger and is judgmental towards us, or not a God who looks at us and sees us as unclean, but Father, a God who wants to embrace us, a God who asks us to place everything in us that's unclean on you, so that we may be released from this weariness, from our burdens. 
pray for every single person who has raised their hand this morning and ask, Lord, that you do a work in their lives. In Jesus' name. Father, that you give each one of us strength to be able to pursue you and pursue love, pursue charity, pursue hospitality, Lord. That we would see those who are marginalized in our community, that we would see those who are marginalized in our workplaces, that we would see those who are marginalized in this building. And that we would demonstrate and show your hospitality, your love in Jesus' name.